Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Banana split for my baby. A plain water for me. Banana split for my baby. A glass of plain water for me. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. 23 years ago, President Ronald Reagan designated today, the third Sunday in July, as National Ice Cream Day. It's a special day here in Massachusetts where we double dip every day of the year even in freezing temperatures. And it was here in Greater Boston where ice cream innovators helped catapult ice cream from a humble, mass-produced product to a handmade artisanal specialty. My guests are Amy Edinger, who loves ice cream so much she wrote a book about it. It's called Sweet Spot, an ice cream binge across America. Amy is joining me from California. Hello, Amy. Hello. So glad to have you in this conversation. And here in the studio with me, Judy Harrell, owner of Harrell's Ice Cream, which holds a special place in ice cream history. Harrell's flagship store is in Northampton, Massachusetts, and there's also a Harrell's in Huntington, New York. Welcome, Judy. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Glad to have you. Also with me, Gus Rancatori, whose Toscanini's Ice Cream in Central Square is a hometown favorite. Hello, Gus. Hi. I'm so glad to have all of you because this is my favorite conversation. I love ice cream. Let me start with you, Amy, because, of course, you wrote the book about it. And you wrote it because you seriously began with your own ice cream obsession. Tell me about it. It started when I was a kid, and my dad would bring home these enormous tubs of ice cream. And I grew up with two older brothers. There was all this chaos and fighting all over the house all the time. But when he brought home that ice cream, we would all sit down at the table, and we would make our sundaes, and quiet would descend for the couple minutes that it would take to devour it. So what do you think about how ice cream has evolved then from the way that you and your family enjoyed it? And I remember my dad bringing home the Neapolitan with the three stripes. I don't even remember who mm-hmm. made it. It was something from the uh, commercial maker. And now it's something entirely different. It has become something very different. I mean, there are so many of these small artisanal shops opening all over the country. But at the same time, I think the ice cream traditions of sharing it with your family remain And there are so many spots around the country where people want to go to those places because they went as kids and they want to bring their kids or their grandkids there. So it's evolved, but I think the traditions are still in place. Well, I tell you one tradition that got a lot of people interested in ice cream, of course, was the Good Humor ice cream truck. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of a Good Humor ice cream ad. This is a 1982 ad. Wow, doesn't that bring back a memory, Amy? <laughs> yeah, it's you know, I think it's amazing how the trucks, the certain sounds and jingles from the trucks or there's certain commercials that just bring all these memories flooding back. Well, Judy, you and Steve of Harold's 
really began the, if we can call it, ice cream revolution. <laughs> In Somerville, back in the day, yeah. um, it had... was it was more Steve than me. Okay, but yes, Steve, like Amy, believed in the family of ice cream, if you will. He used to make, and we still do as a family, that uses a hand crank freezer and makes ice cream every Fourth of July. It's sort of a family tradition, but Steve always wanted ice cream that had that same texture and same kind of flavor. So that hand crank, you know, Nancy Johnson's hand crank freezer from way back when was for him the way to go. And so when he, he started Steve's, his goal was to mimic that kind of ice cream, and it really did start quite a, a craze. <laughs> well, there's two innovations that came from Steve. Um, the first, when you talk about that hand crank feeling or mm -hmm. sensibility to the product, he made a product with very low air. Correct. Uh, talk about what that meant. Okay, that's called overrun. Mm -hmm. And overrun is the amount of air that you incorporate into your ice cream. It doesn't matter if it's a hand crank or, you know, a Cuisinart mixer for your house. There's an auger sort of shaped object in the center, which is called a dasher. How fast the dasher goes will dictate how much air goes into your ice cream. So the slower the dasher moves, the less air is incorporated into the product. So a low overrun ice cream, the public will define that as a rich, very thick, creamy, heavy, luxurious ice cream. And that's what we make. Other kinds of overrunner, airier ice creams, and they weigh much, much less. If you pick up, a, you know, a half gallon of Hood and you pick up a half gallon of a Harold's ice cream, for example, or even Gus's product, there's a huge weight difference, and that's because of the overrun. Well, here's the thing that I think people will just find fascinating is that in Steve's original beginnings of with the low air, so many people were passing through. Gus, we're going to get to you in just a second. But some of the people passing through watching this and tasting it and enjoying it were Ben and Jerry. That's true. <laughs> Tell that story, please. <laughs> well, Ben and Jerry evidently came into the store and spent quite a lot of time there watching the White Mountain freezer in the window and trying to figure out why the dasher was going so slowly. Steve had tinkered with the motor on that unit and put a gear reducer on it and slowed down the dasher. And uh, they spent a lot of time trying to figure it out until finally Steve went over and chatted with them. And they explained that they wanted to open a Steve's-like store up in the Burlington, Vermont area. And Steve was very encouraging to them. And the four of us are still friends after all these years. Isn't that something? Yeah. That's my guest, Judy Harrell. She's the owner of Harrell's Ice Cream, which started, it's fair to say, the ice cream revolution in the entire country. Moving over to you, Gus, you had a Steve's connection before you became Gus, <laughs> as it were, uh, the man behind Toscanini's. <laughs> I had come to Boston to finish my college degree at Boston University, and a friend who taught school in Somerville, Massachusetts, told me about this place that made ice cream um, in front of people. And I naturally thought that was impossible. And she insisted that I go visit. And I was immediately kind of in love with the whole idea, in particular because it was possible to get extra chocolate chips at Steve's Ice Cream. And <laughs> chocolate chip remains one of my favorite flavors. And what did you take away from that that inspired you so much that Amy wrote a book about ice cream because of her obsession and you decided, I'm making ice cream after this? <laughs> well, my part-time job 
that, um, like so many American college students I had, turned into a full-time job. And at first I was the cleanup person, then I was a server, and eventually I became an ice cream maker. And I worked at Steve's Ice Cream when Steve owned it, and then he sold the business to Joey and Nino Crignali, who ran a smaller ice cream store in a nearby part of Somerville. And I worked um, with them for a couple of years, and finally I decided... Um, while I was no closer to getting an undergraduate degree in anything, <laughs> that if I was going to continue to make ice cream, I'd rather do it in my own fashion and for myself. And so I knew that good spots for ice cream stores were near colleges and universities, and um, we ended up locating near MIT in Central Square, Cambridge. All right, so back to you, Amy. What I'm impressed by from your book are all these interesting pieces of information I knew nothing about, including something that I read in your book, which I'm going to ask you to read just a bit, an excerpt from Sweet Spot, an ice cream binge across America, which is your book. On page 60, this is about the longevity of ice cream, the stuff that you find in the refrigerated parts of the grocery store. And I just found this very, very interesting. And yet ice cream, at least in theory, can sit in a store freezer for months, if not years, and remain edible. The biggest shock of my Penn State education came when Roberts announced that there is no expiration date on ice cream. I am someone who maniacally checks expiration dates. I will not use eggs or milk that's expired, even if the products seem perfectly fine and pass the dastardly sniff test. So how could something that was made from both milk and eggs not have an expiration date? Roberts explained that a properly made, doodle pasteurized product doesn't really need one. Shelf life, however, is another matter. The longer an ice cream stays on a shelf, the more its defects show. Stabilizers can help preserve it, but no amount of add-ins, chemicals, or hacks can correct against human error. Impatience is the enemy of great ice cream. How many times have I gotten fidgety, sick of waiting, and poured a semi-cool mix into my ice cream machine, then watched it in misery as the paddle flailed around in the soupy mess, which resembled a glass of Ensure? As I found out in the short course, a proper ice cream mix must be given time to mature. That's my guest, Amy Edinger. Her book is Sweet Spot, an ice cream binge across America. You talked about Penn State. People may be surprised to know there's a whole education that a lot of new ice cream makers are getting at Penn State on how to make it in the way that Gus and Judy came to by a guest trial and error and some other kinds of uh, education right in the shop. But people are now going to get educated about making ice cream. And they have been for more than actually 150 years at Penn State. So the farmers used to send their kids over to Penn State in the wintertime when it was kind of slow at the farm to learn how to make ice cream from the milk and the eggs that were around on the farm. And But now, yeah, it's really a booming education at Penn State. The short course and the short, short course just sell out <clears throat> months, if not years, in advance. That's my guest, Amy Edinger, whose book, Sweet Spot, An Ice Cream Binge Across America, is really quite educational about ice cream. And if you love it, you'll enjoy that. Judy, back to you, because I said there were two innovations that Steve's made. One we talked about, that's the low air. The second was smush-ins, where some people may know as mix-ins. They've seen it in Cold Stone Creamery and other places with different kinds of names. But the inventor of that idea, that concept, that customization came from Steve. That's correct. <laughs> the mix-in started with Steve's because Steve had a tendency to want to play with his food. And, you know, what do you do when you play with your food? You mix it up and you add things to it and you play with it. The idea came from he and, and friends that lived in a co-op house together decided that 
everybody liked a different kind of thing with their ice cream, including Thomas Jefferson, who liked a Savoy cookie. If you look in the National Archives, you'll find his recipes. So what Steve did is he took, you know, popular cookies like Oreos and chocolate chips, and he took candies that were very popular like Heath Bar and Reese's, and he got the idea that the customer could choose the flavor of the base of the ice cream and then take some of these goodies and mix them in by having the staff member stand there in front of a board, not a refrigerated mm -hmm. board, just a laminated you know, board over a sink, and with a spade and a scoop, play with their food, and then put it into a, a cup, and they would enjoy it. So it was really customization. And it grew. It grew over time. I'd say. Yeah. By 1978, <laughs> you were finding pop-ups of this innovation all over the place. It really caught on. And it all really came from some obsessed person who wanted to play with their food. Gus, you mentioned that you wanted more chocolate chips. And so that was part and parcel of the customization. What is it when people come into Toscanini's and they know they're getting special flavors? How do you know that they are coming to enjoy something a little bit different, a lot different, actually, from what they might get in the refrigerated case? And no shame on that. I like the refrigerated case stuff, too. Well, after working at Steve's Ice Cream for several years, I wanted to do something different. And I was sort of exhausted with the idea of doing mix-ins or smush-ins or crush-ins. And so what we decided to do was simplify the process a little and make more ice cream flavors than most ice cream stores did. And we also began to explore ice cream flavors from other parts of the United States and other cultures and other countries. We've always been very alert to suggestions from customers and things we read about or things we encounter when we travel. Kofi is one of your favorites. It's made with cardamom and pistachios. That was one of the, the newest innovations early and, on. Yeah. And I think Kofi literally means frozen dessert in Hindi. And when we started making Kofi, which um, a professor at Harvard helped us understand what we were doing because I'd never eaten it, we mostly sold the flavor and some other South Asian flavors to professors and grad students. But Indian food becomes ever more broadly distributed in the United States and ever more popular. And so we have kulfi all the time now. We have 32 flavors, and there are about 20 flavors that we have constantly. And kulfi has become one of those. Another South Asian flavor um, made with saffron was something that I once described as tasting like the inside of a vacuum cleaner. Oh, great. <laughs> but over time, I myself like it a lot, and the customers have made it more popular. So um, American food is always changing, and part of what we do is follow some of those changes and occasionally get slightly out in front, but not too far in front. Well, one of uh, WGBH's contributors and a well-known food critic, Corby Cummer, is a, quite a fan. He wrote a whole essay about your burnt caramel. I should note that for both of you, celebrities have flocked to your shops. You made a special vanilla for Julia Child. I did. Uh, yeah, uh, we did. And did you just come up with it for her, or did you because you knew her palate, or, um, or she asked for something? She kind of made a request. Well, it was a combination. Julia was being honored by the French Foreign Legion for her contribution to culinary in 1995. And we got a phone call. They were doing a cream puff kind of takeoff as a dessert. And she asked if we could make a vanilla that was, you know, punched of vanilla. And she liked the Madagascan vanillas and the bourbon vanillas very much. So we, we wanted to sort of load it up, but not to the point where it would be bitter. And it was quite a success. It's called Private Stock Vanilla. Ah, of course. Yeah. That makes yep. sense. Yep. 
And back to you, Gus, I was taken with a story I read where you, a customer came over to said to you, that guy over there in the saffron robes is. Tell the story. (laughs) One day, um, the Dalai Lama came in the ice cream store. Um, He was visiting MIT. I remember that one of the employees said, I think that's the Dalai Lama. And another employee said, it's just a monk. Now, it is true that you see more monks in Cambridge than you do in other places. But um, the Dalai Lama has a special presence, not the least because he's always surrounded by kind of acolytes of one sort or another. And uh, the Dalai Lama came in, got a vanilla ice cream cone, presented some cash, which he had somewhere on his costume. Yeah, Yeah, in his robes and (laughs) and ate the ice cream. And I assume you got kind of a special feeling in the store afterwards, you know, if the Dalai Lama's there. A small blessing, perhaps. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. (laughs) One of the things that I've been fascinated by are your your two, and Amy, I want you to get in on this, why we have an obsession with ice cream. Amy, you explained your own obsession. I certainly have something of an obsession for for ice cream and and the kind of specialty ice cream that these two great folks make. Amy, so let's start with you. Why do you think that ice cream has become even more popular than it has been? It dates back all the way to our founding fathers. You know, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson had this obsession with ice cream. And I think that there's this idea of technology and innovation and creativity around ice cream that's really always driven Americans to be fascinated by it. And I think it's become even more so right now. What weird different flavors (laughs) can we (laughs) put in our ice cream? It's really captured the, the imagination of, I think, a lot of folks in this country right now. Judy, you say, because Massachusetts is one of the top 10 states in consuming ice cream all year round, that's freezing or sweltering, and you believe it's because of depression. I do. I think it's depression. (laughs) I think, well, if you look at at who's in just the top five, we've got Alaska, we've got New England. (laughs) There's not a lot of light here, guys, in the winter, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think it's depression. I think people need to pick me up, and ice cream makes people happy. Well, Gus, you have a different (laughs) answer to it. You say, Boston's not a boozy town, so ice cream has become the thing. (laughs) I wouldn't disagree, though, with the idea that um, that ice cream is a small pleasure that's kind of an antidote to long winters and short periods of daylight. But I think a big thing in Boston is that um, we have more college students than most places, and most of those college students are working pretty hard. Um, This is not a hard-drinking college town. Ice cream is a plausible social premise. It's an acceptable interruption in your work day, maybe a very long work day, and it's an occasion for you to either take a solitary break or get together with some friends and have a pleasant interlude and then go back and do some more work. So now, Amy, we have an awful lot of homemade ice cream stores here in New England, but it seems as though California may still beat us. Is that possible? We have a lot in California. It's true. I think, but I think they're popping up all over the country, um, even in places that you wouldn't imagine because there's so many really good old style parlors still there too. But they're now small artisanal shops that are competing with those. And, and I think that people are really wanting to open these mom-and-pop stores, which really drove me to want to write this book. That was a big motivation for me, is to talk to some of these folks about why they were opening the stores, and the answers were really interesting. 
Well, one of the things that I think is interesting, and you mentioned it uh, in passing, but let's, because these guys have been experimenting with various flavors, a lot of savory flavors. You tasted some that were pretty awful out there uh, in your travels. Why are people trying to push the limits? Hey, we like it sweet and it's good and there's enough sweet, interesting flavors. Why are we pushing in that direction? Doesn't seem to make sense to me. Well, actually, it's sort of how it began. I mean, Dolly Madison loved oyster ice cream. She loved a savory ice cream. And I think that we had more savory ice cream back then than than we do now. So it's sort of getting back to what folks were eating maybe more before. I was really pushed to try to figure out why. And I went down and I uh, to Los Angeles and I found a chef who actually made me the Dolly Madison's oyster ice cream. And it was so unusual and so unlike anything I'd ever tried that I had this experience where I couldn't process it. I couldn't figure out for a moment whether I loved it or hated it. And I could understand in that moment why people are novelty seeking with their ice cream. They're trying to find something different, have a food experience that they've never had before that kind of takes you back to being a kid. I can do without it, I'm just going to (laughs) say. I'd love to know the new trends in ice cream from you, Gus, you think are going, or if you're even going to bother with that. Well, I think that one of the reasons people come to Toscanini's and similar ice cream stores is to be surprised. And ice cream stores in the United States innovate a sort of surprising clip. I mean, I've been making ice cream for years, and when I started, I thought at some point, I'd likely run out of ideas, but people keep bringing new ideas to us. We didn't make discoveries in books and when we're traveling, and there's all sorts of things. I think right now um, you see South Asian and Middle Eastern foods coming. People are doing mashups. A lot of, well, I think perhaps Steve's importance um, was much greater than in ice cream, that um, Steve and other people um, were the beginning of a movement where American foods food makers turned away from industrialization. And so all, I think that Steve's descendants aren't just the ice cream stores that are dotted around the country. Um, they're all the microbrewers and the people who are making artisanal tacos. The farm-to-table people. Farm-to-table. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a yeah. lot of that mm-hmm. um, started in in Somerville and other places, yeah. mm-hmm. um, but it certainly began there. Okay. Trends, do yeah. I'm seeing a lot of the savory trends coming back. We have a lot of ice cream flavors. We have over 375 flavors, and it grows. And we rotate them in. We serve 60 flavors at a time. And some of the types of flavors that we've been making are things like Thanksgiving, which is a sage-based ice cream with cranberries and pecans. So it kind of tastes like stuffing. We have hearts and flowers, which is rose and lavender. Or we have halava, date nut halava, which is a sesame seed-based ice cream. And we see different, not only cultural populations, but there's an emotional component to the ice cream that you make and people's suggestions. You know, um, we even have, we're, we're even working right now on making a dextrose ice cream as opposed to a cane sugar ice cream. Because um, there's a local endocrinologist to us who believes that it's better for people that are diabetic. Well, one question I'm going to ask each of you that I know all my listeners will want to know because we're all nosy. Your favorite, just one, Amy, ice cream flavor. (laughs) Butter pecan. Gus? Chocolate chip. I started with chocolate chip. I continue. And Judy. Oh, I'm the weird one. I love root beer because there's nothing better in the world than having a root beer float with root beer ice cream. Well... 
I would sort of say peppermint stick that often gets to me, but I like, well, actually, I like everything. I don't know why I'm saying I don't like something. <laughs> Let me just end that way and say thank you all for joining me in this obsessive conversation about my favorite cold treat. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Amy Edinger is the author of Sweet Spot, an ice cream binge across America. The book is available in stores and online now. Judy Harrell is the owner of Harrell's Ice Cream in Northampton, Massachusetts, and Huntington, New York. And Gus Roccatori is the owner of Toscanini's Ice Cream in Central Square. Just for fun. Banana split for my baby. And a glass of plain water for me. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show and links to stories we discussed today on the web at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Andrea Aswahi is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Drown it in fudge, six or seven cans. Give her two spoons, she'll eat it with both hands. Bananas big for my baby. And a glass of plain water for me. Separate checks, it must be. Charge to split the hug, the water to me. Oh, the banana splits for my baby. And the glass of plain water's for me. Ain't got no money. The banana